0: Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by visiting davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 22nd episode of this podcast recorded on Friday, June 16. I post episodes every other Wednesday. A big thanks to this podcast sponsor, Next Firm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email development at nextfirm.com Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. My guest today is Judge Amul Thapar, who has served on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit since 2017. Before joining the Sixth Circuit, he served as a judge on the Eastern District of Kentucky, When he was appointed to that court in 2008, he was the first South Asian Article III judge in American history. I'll stop here in terms of Judge Thapar's impressive biography and life story, since we discussed them in the interview, but I will share with you why I'm interviewing him now. Last week, Regnery published Judge Thapar's first book, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories that Define Him. As I say in my blurb, the People's Justice is a beautifully written, meticulously researched exploration of Justice Thomas's jurisprudence. Through compelling storytelling and lucid legal analysis, the book makes a novel and persuasive case for how originalism often protects ordinary people over powerful special interests. In our conversation, Judge Thapar and I discuss his inspiring background as the children of immigrants, his interview at the White House for a seat on the Supreme Court, The Secrets of His Success as a SCOTUS Feeder Judge, and The People's Justice, including discussion of recent controversies involving the book's subject, Justice Thomas. Without further ado, here's my interview of Judge Amul Thapar. Judge Thapar, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So congratulations on the publication of The People's Justice. I believe that we are recording a little before the official publication date, but The official publication date is June 20, I believe? Yes, June 20th, so it'll be out when you post this, and I hope people will go get it on Amazon or wherever your books are sold. (laughs) Yes, and I do as well. I submitted a blurb for it. I think it is wonderful, and we'll get to that in just a second. But to start at the beginning, let's start with your life and career before we get to the birth of your book. Where did you grow up? So I
1: grew up in Toledo. We ended up there because my dad came from India. He had a one-way ticket and $5 and made it over here when he was 18. His story is amazing. I won't go through it now, but he eventually ended up working at Ford Motor Company after college and then bought into a very small business early in my childhood. And so at age six, I moved from Detroit to Toledo or my family moved and I went with them, of
0: course. And you grew up in Toledo, I believe? I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. It sounds like your father was a business person. What did your mom do? So my dad was an engineer
1: and, yes, a business person. And then my mom was a social worker, but she left social work to open a restaurant, which was an incredible restaurant. But we'll probably get to it after 9-11. She sold the restaurant and went and worked in the Army as a contractor working with troops who had PTSD.
0: Oh, wow. That's amazing work. Wow, that's great.
1: Yeah, incredible parents, really incredible parents.
0: Was she also an immigrant?
1: Yes, they were both from India. My mom came slightly after my dad, but probably three or four years after. And they met here in the States? No, they met in India, and then my dad brought her back. It was an arranged marriage, which we could spend a whole podcast on, (laughs) but I think most of your listeners probably understand that about India. At least for a long time, most marriages were arranged.
0: Wow. Fascinating. So I'm curious, you had a mom who was a social worker, a father who was an engineer. Any lawyers in the family, whether here or back in India? No.
1: My dad was very, very poor growing up. And my mom, my grandfather was in the Indian military. And so there were no lawyers. When I called my dad from college and told him I was going to law school, his first comment was, why would you go to grad school to work an hourly job? That's what the family thought of lawyers. My sister is the crown jewel of the family. She became a doctor. (laughs) At least my parents and a lot of Indian parents that are of that generation think doctors and engineers are the way to go in business indirectly and not law. And so (laughs) I was, in many ways, the dark sheep in the family.
0: So what led you to go to law school then, if it wasn't anything in your family or having lawyers around when you were growing up? You know, watching movies, I
1: thought, I would like to be a trial lawyer. I never really focused on it until some of my roommates in college said they were going to go to law school. And the alternative was to get a job. And I thought, oh, if I can go to law school, I'll do that because maybe I can get into the performance aspect of law and become a trial lawyer. And so that was kind of a dream. And I applied to law school and was fortunate enough to get
0: in. So you graduated from Berkeley Law and then you clerked, I believe, as your first jobs.
1: Yes, I clerked on the district court here in Cincinnati and the Sixth Circuit here in Cincinnati for S. Arthur Spiegel on the district court and Nate Jones on the Sixth Circuit. Both incredible, incredible human beings. I was so lucky to clerk for them and they were mentors. They've sadly passed now, but I have mementos in my chambers to both of them. And they just were amazing mentors.
0: Did you and your judge overlap on the Sixth Circuit? I'm forgetting now the chronology.
1: I wish. I went to lunch with him once a month when I became a district judge and then a Sixth Circuit judge. But he had become a partner in a law firm or of counsel in a law firm, started writing books and being on boards. And so he walked away from being a judge when he felt like he was ready. He took senior status and did that for 10 years and then walked away and lived into his 90s. That's the Sixth Circuit
0: judge and was just an amazing human being. Wow, no, that's great. So after your clerkships, walk us through your time in the profession. You have really done everything. You've been in private practice. You've been in big law. You've been a prosecutor. You've been in both a trial and an appellate judge. So bring us up to date.
1: Yeah, so I think this is appropriate. My wife calls me the Forrest Gump of law. I keep <laughs> running through the profession and good things happen to me. And I think that's true. I went from my clerkships to Williams and Connolly, a firm I loved a lot and the people there I love. In fact, I recused so that I can profess my love for them. I recused from their cases. I took a little period off, but I found myself still professing my love for the firm. So I went back on the recusal. It's pretty safe for me in the Sixth Circuit. They don't get here often. After that, I became an AUSA in D.C. and I got that trial aspect, that trial bug kind of bit me and I wanted to be on my feet. And I loved that amazing job. I was going to work with people that all had the same interests at heart. It was a wonderful group of people. My wife had our first child and got pregnant immediately with our second, almost immediately. And she decided we were moving home. I came home from one day, I'd been offered an amazing job, and I told her, hey, I've got this great thing to tell you, I got offered this amazing job. In response, she said, I've got amazing news for you too. And I said, you wanna hear about my job? She said, you should probably hear about my amazing news, we're moving home. (laughs) Meaning to where she grew up, which is where we are now in Northern Kentucky, and that kind of killed my job prospects. So first I worked at a dot com, unfortunately became a dot bomb I was the general counsel and I did that in Virginia but they gave me a deal where eventually I could move home and I moved home and went to Squire Sanders and Dempsey and worked for them for about nine months I planned to stay long term and become a partner and actually enjoyed it but I was on a plane on 9-11 and I was going to Los Angeles to take a deposition I vowed to the Lord if we touched ground, I would immediately put in an application on September 12th. I put in an application with the U.S. Attorney's Office and went back and never left until I moved up to U.S. Attorney in the Eastern District of Kentucky. Wonderful job. And then became a district judge for 10 years before moving to the circuit. So as I told you, that's exhaustive. When you tell the story, you see that I truly am the Forrest Gump of law. And here I am.
0: So you were really inspired to continue or return to government service by the events of 9-11, it sounds like.
1: Yes. Yeah. I made a commitment that that's what I would do.
0: And I put in an application the next day as soon as I got home. Wow, that's great. And so I know you grew up in Southern Ohio, but you wound up in the Eastern District of Kentucky. That's because of your wife's family? Yes, exactly. How far are they apart, like sort of Southern Ohio and your part of Kentucky? So
1: we are about 10 miles. My house is about 10 miles from downtown Cincinnati. My chambers is one mile from downtown. And if you look out the window, you can see downtown Cincinnati.
0: Oh, okay. Interesting. So really, you did return to your home as well as your wife's home.
1: Yeah, I'm from Toledo, which is northern Ohio, but oh, close enough, right? Okay. I loved okay. Toledo, but she wasn't moving there. She was coming where her
0: family was because she did the lion's share of raising the kids. She's amazing. Fair enough, fair enough. So you've had a lot of different jobs, including the in-house stint. So You really have touched everything, government, private practice, in-house. You need to be a professor, although I guess you are an adjunct professor too. That's correct. Do you have a favorite job of all the jobs you've had? And it doesn't necessarily need to be the most prominent one. I would argue your current job is the most prominent one. But do you have any one that's sort of a sentimental favorite? I mean, I love what I do now, but
1: I really enjoyed the district court. I felt like it was a lot more work. It was also more stressful because you don't have colleagues checking your work, so to speak, and you're sentencing, which is just a very, very difficult thing to do. You know, God gave us a lot of talents. He didn't give us the talent to judge other people in that way. And so your failures there are much more pronounced. I think being a U.S. attorney, was an amazing opportunity and everyone that's a U.S. attorney will say it's the best job they ever had. And maybe I can take about 30 seconds to explain why. And that is because you're on a team not only of 94 U.S. attorneys who care passionately about serving the country, but you have this amazing staff that also is there for the public service aspect because they don't make enough to be there otherwise and do amazing work and care a lot. And so I've been lucky. I've had a lot of great jobs. I think I've in some way loved every one of them. You know, there's always tedium to what we do. And that's true in everything we do. And you've just got to accept that if the ultimate job you love, you have to accept there's days where you're going to be doing drudge work. And that's the nature of the beast. And there's no profession. Everyone thinks, oh, all these professions, there's this profession that's glorious, but everyone has to do drudge work.
0: No, that's true. And it's healthy to have that sense of perspective. Even the Supreme Court has its not-so-sexy cases, which brings me to my next question in terms of your career path and your being the Forrest Gump of law. Back in 2018, you were considered for a seat on the Supreme Court that ultimately went to now Justice Kavanaugh. Can you say anything about that process, any takeaways, anything that you really took away from that whole process? You know,
1: I remember distinctly walking off the bench. So I was a district judge initially when I ended up on the list. Right. And so I walk off the bench and I walk by one of my law clerk's offices and she said, hey, judge, you're on a list. And I said, a list. I said, this doesn't sound good. And then she explained (laughs) to me what it was. And I said, all right, let's see how that goes. And, you know, it was an incredible honor think about it. I am the child of immigrants. My dad had nothing. I mean, if you talk about dirt poor, if you saw where my dad grew up, you would think, boy, anywhere in America. Now, I don't want my dad to hear this because he loved where he grew up, but anywhere in America is better than that. we all have it better than he had. it, And it was unbelievably poor. And he came over and, you know, English is a second language for him and my mom. And it just shows that My dad always said to me when I'd come home and complain, I can't do this or this is too hard or anything. His comment was the same. This is the greatest country in the world. If you put your mind to it, there's nothing you can't accomplish. Roll your sleeves up, work hard, and good things will happen. And think about that. I then end up on a list. I'm considered for the Supreme Court, the child of immigrants. I take that really seriously. I think that's important that we step back as children of immigrants or immigrants and remember that the fabric of this country in many ways is that anyone can accomplish anything if they're A, given an opportunity and B, have a supportive family. I view both of those as very, very critical to my success. And I just know that it's such an honor just to be mentioned in the same breath as the Supreme Court. Having said that, I got to say, I got the best colleagues in the world. I sit on a court I truly love, and I'm a really lucky person.
0: I'm curious, can you say anything about your interview with then-President Trump? I'll be somewhat short on that, but I'll tell you that it was much
1: more enjoyable than I anticipated. He was definitely well-versed and had really, really good and thoughtful questions for me. And he had his interests that we talked about as well. I enjoyed the process, you know, to get to go to the White House again as the child of immigrants and both sit in the Oval Office and be in the residence. I mean, I got to be in the residence. I got to see the Lincoln bedroom. President was more than willing to show me around. I know he had better things to do, but he asked if I wanted to see anything. And I said the Lincoln bedroom and he was happy to take me there. So I was honored to be there and honored to see those things and be considered.
0: So it sounds like you were not too crestfallen about not getting the job in the end. So it's interesting when you have
1: kids, as you know, David, they come first. Your spouse and kids come first and they didn't want to leave their schools and change their lives. I became a judge at 37 years old, 37, 38. People think that's really young. I agree. It was too young, I thought, to become a judge. What I would say is, The beauty of that is my kids kept me humble. They reminded me every day I'm just a dad and I'm just a spouse and I'm not very good at either of them. So they would remind me of that. I love them dearly, but they always kept me humble. And one story, my youngest, he was about five and I got home from work and I said, you have to clean up your room, it's a mess. And he looked at me without blinking and said, you're not the boss of me, mom is. And (laughs) I learned really quickly. and so. I just think, for me, family is the number one priority in my life, and I couldn't be where I'm at without any of them. And if that's what they truly wanted, it was best for all of us.
0: Well, it is true that your kids are growing up, going off to school, so maybe you'll have the opportunity to serve on the court in the future. But let me ask you something related to that before we turn to the book. You are known as a top Supreme Court feeder judge, meaning a judge who sends his clerks on to clerk for the Supreme Court, which is, of course, a great high honor and an amazing experience. What's your secret as a feeder judge? Bourbon. <laughs> you know, I love my clerks. They're like extended family. I've been
1: so blessed to have them. You wouldn't believe. So the threshold to hire them really low. They just have to be smarter than me, which for almost <laughs> everyone in law school, that is easily accomplished. And... I find people I really like personally and then I recruit them as much as I can. But there's two common denominators in my clerks. They're brilliant and they're very likable people. And so those are the things I look for. If you think about it, we spend time in a very small office. I spend more time with my clerks than I do with anyone else, right? Because we're there all day. When you're on the district court, you interact with real people when you're in the court of appeals, it's your clerks, it's the staff in the courthouse, all amazing, security, all amazing. And I interact with them a lot. So you better like who you have in your chambers. And the other thing is I view it as a recruiting process. So once I find the people I like, I give them a lot of bourbon and they <laughs> get hooked. Luckily, the bourbon industry done well and we have all this wonderful bourbon in Kentucky if you like horses. And frankly, it's affordable to live here in clerk the clerk's salaries aren't great compared to what they could be earning but you can definitely do it in this area of the world
0: that's interesting so it sounds like a lot of it is in the initial selection then you just hire great people and the justices know you hire great people and you train them well so it sounds like that as opposed to you sort of necessarily picking up the phone or sort of lobbying very hard I pick up the phone and call professors I
1: trust around the country and talk to them. And there are a number of professors that I trust. And not all of them think the same way as I do, but I trust them. And they're wonderful people and they know what I like. And that's what matters, is the professors know the personality and the people I will enjoy being around.
0: Also, though, in terms of picking up the phone, I was thinking of you picking up the phone to a justice to say, hey, have I got a great clerk for you? I think people think of theater judges as... Like that, but I don't know how much of it is that, and how much of it is just you select great people, you have a reputation for being a great boss, you have a reputation as a feeder judge, and you just naturally get great people. I think it's a lot of the latter and
1: very little of the former. I think the justices know, and not that I'm a great judge, but the people are great, I get. And I think the justices know what they're looking for. And I don't know how much, maybe people think calls help. I don't like to bother them. I think they know what they want. They know what they're looking for. Can I help prep my clerk? Sure. Can I get them in the pipeline? Yes. But no, I don't tell the justices who to hire or anything like that. They know what they want and they're going to hire who they want to hire, no matter what I think or say or anyone thinks
0: or says. Interesting. Interesting. And I have spoken to other feeder judges who take that view as well. So let's turn to the book, the book, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas, and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him. So tell us about the book. Obviously, I'm familiar with the book, having read it and really enjoyed it. But for my listeners who are not familiar with it, give us sort of like the short summary of it. You know, so a lot of us, law
1: and non-law alike, know the principles, know about originalism in theory. But what I find is that originalism in practice is much different than people think about of originalism in theory. And what I think is often lost is the real people that are in front of the court and their stories. And what I learned in studying Justice Thomas's jurisprudence is he cares a lot about those people, and it shouldn't surprise anyone that knows him that he cares passionately about the people in front of the court. Of course, he cares about the original meaning, but his belief, and I think the book proves it, is that the original meaning supports people you ordinarily would not think. Why? Think of my dad again, to use an example. My dad came over to this country. One of the things he found great about this country is he could read a law, he could understand it, and he thought it would apply to him as he read it. People wouldn't be changing the law for the rich to benefit at the expense of the poor or the strong to benefit at the expense of the weak. Well, what protects those people is certainty in law. And What Justice Thomas tries to accomplish is following the meaning, and that meaning often benefits these real people. What I was surprised about is how gripping these stories are. And once I researched it and talked to people and saw all the things, in doing the book, it just, it shocked me. And it's something the public really doesn't know about, and I think they should. And so I put the book together.
0: This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212 292 1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests. So I know you did a lot of research for this book. I remember one time we met up for drinks in New Haven, and I think you were actually going up to New London to interview or to meet with Suzette Kilo or maybe to sort of scope out the area, at least. And you write about a lot of other people with amazing stories, like Ms. Raish, who was the woman who needed the medicinal marijuana, I believe. And you write about all these amazing stories. How did you research this book? Because I think what's so great about the book is it's not just legal doctrine, although many of us are fascinated by legal doctrine. Every chapter tells the story of an individual who was touched or affected by Justice Thomas's jurisprudence. So how did you go about researching the personal stories, not the Westlaw side of it?
1: Yeah, so I did a number of things, and maybe it'd be helpful if I kind of walk through. I'll use race because you brought it up. So, racial is interesting. What I wanted to do is put the reader in the litigants' position. In other words, make them understand. Because while Justice Thomas is the protagonist of originalism and he, he's the people's justice, as the book tries to prove, and that's the thesis of the book, the heroes of the book are the litigants, as I soon learned. And it's really amazing when you read the book. I think you'll see and be gripped by their stories. And Angel is an incredible person. And I had the luck of not only talking to the lawyers in the case randy barnett angel's ex-husband but i talked to angel extensively and she and i talked about everything in the case and other things and she gave me a lot of details that just aren't out there uh she pointed me to records and i went and got them and just all kinds of things another one that was fascinating was State Farm. I think everyone knows it in the legal world as the punitive damage case, but what they don't know is the stories behind it. And not only did I read the trial record and go through the entire record, but I talked to the lawyers and Roger Christensen, one of the lawyers in the case, gave me the story. I'm sure you read about Larry Tribe and how they went and got Larry Tribe to argue it. And just everything about it was amazing. And he'd send us documents that we couldn't get anywhere that he would scan and send. And so it was really amazing putting it together. I had a lot of fun doing it, and it really was inspiring these litigants in the Zellman chapter, just seeing ordinary people come together to solve a problem and then have it get challenged in court and they fight for that and just the passion with which they cared about these things.
0: I think it's so important for us to remember that behind every case caption are real people with real problems, and your book really beautifully and eloquently demonstrates that. Given all the stories you had to tell and all the trial and appellate records you had to comb through and all of the individual litigants and their lawyers that you interviewed with, how long did it take you to write the book, especially since you kind of have a demanding day job, too?
1: Yeah. So I started the process over two years ago, maybe three years ago, I thought about it. I taught a class on Scalia versus Thomas at UVA, and that kind of that was a while ago. And that inspired the idea of maybe doing a Scalia versus Thomas book and just showing that the rigorous originalism, they both went through to reach results. But as I started to dig in, I really found this theme of the people's justice and Justice Thomas, and I thought, boy, it'd be interesting to tell not only the originalist side of why the critics are wrong when they say he favors the rich over the poor, the strong over the weak, the corporations over the consumers, or they call him a traitor to his race, which the book also disproves. But really, I had to go through that process mentally of figuring out what it was. And as you know, David, as an author yourself, I mean, that's a hard process to figure out what you're going to do, what you're going to write. And then the real work starts once you figure that out. You do the research and you start talking to people. You start interviewing, you write and rewrite. And I owe my family a lot because I would come home every night and I would write. I would write from when I got home till when I got to bed. And then I learned that three o'clock in the morning is a great hour to write. And I'd get my dog up and he would groan at me. And every (laughs) morning we'd go down on the deck and just he and I would sit there. And between three and seven, I would sit and write. I never had gotten that much done between those hours, but I learned that three o'clock in the morning is a great hour for
0: three to five to six, a great hour to focus when no one else in the world is up. Wow. And you talk about this in the acknowledgments. You thank your family for putting up with the late nights and early mornings. You give a shout out to your dog in the acknowledgments, as I recall. So it sounds like it's just a lot of hard work to do this and on top of your day job because... Unlike some people, you didn't take a book leave or anything, right? You were serving as an active judge this whole time, right?
1: Yes. And, you know, you got weekends. I went with my son. All my kids played sports and my youngest now is leaving. So like you said, we are going to be empty nesters. But I would go with him to sporting events, but I never watched them, which I feel (laughs) bad about. But he didn't care. I'd take him. I'd (laughs) go to meals with him. But when he went to play, I would go find a coffee shop or a library and write. And I did all this because I think it's really important for the readers to learn the stories behind the cases before they immediately assume that Justice Thomas or the originalist answer is wrong. Because I think when painted in the context of not only the Constitution, but the people, you see that maybe originalism is a little different than people think, or at least the critics think, and put out there, and maybe the critics are wrong. And so I hope that people that are critical, both Justice Thomas and the originalist methodology, will read the book. And I'd be happy if they do and they give you hard questions to come back on and answer them, because I think this case makes a really powerful case for
0: originalism. I agree. Having read the book, I think that you do such a beautiful job of showing how originalism, rather than being some kind of Ex post facto justification for right wing outcomes actually has a very strong populist streak that really traces itself back to the Constitution, which is the people's document. So I think you make the case very strongly for Justice Thomas as the people's justice. Now, one development that has happened, I think, since the book went to press, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about it, is Justice Thomas, of course, has had this amazing story. He rose from rural poverty in Georgia. I think you mentioned in the book that literally he grew up in a house with a dirt floor, so he really was dirt poor. And we know, of course, as an adult, he likes to travel around in his RV and go to Walmart parking lots. But a number of months ago, there was this story in ProPublica about how Justice Thomas, among his many friends, and he befriends everyone. Certainly, people say at the court he's friends with everyone from the Chief Justice to the janitor. But Justice Thomas has this very wealthy friend, Harlan Crow, who's this real estate developer, a billionaire by some accounts. And it appears that, or it was reported that, Justice Thomas has enjoyed some luxury travel with Mr. Crow, his resort in upstate New York, a trip to Indonesia or Bali or something like that. Does this news about Justice Thomas? in any way detract from the case for him as the people's justice? No. Well, you know, he definitely has a good
1: friend who happens to be rich. I think what the critics don't talk about in the book proves is that he also has friends who are homeless. And the beginning of the book recounts that. He has, as you mentioned, friends he meets in RV parks across the nation and is friends with everyone in the building, as you just mentioned. As Justice Sotomayor said, and I'm quoting, he is the one justice in the building that literally knows everyone's name. The thing I saw with Justice Thomas when I was with him a couple years ago, we were at Yale. I think you might have even been there, David. I can't remember. They were celebrating the 25th year of Justice Thomas being on the bench, I think. It was, and I don't know if you remember this, if you were there, but there was a reception afterwards and all the faculty, even his critics were there and they wanted to talk to him. And the law students, of course, were there. And he spent more than a half hour talking with the support staff. Then when everyone left and people were going to dinner, he stuck around. He was the only person in there. I was there because I was escorting him to dinner. I was one of the people escorting him and we were waiting on him. And he walked around and shook every janitor support staff shook all of their hands took pictures with them did whatever they wanted and so i understand he has a friend who treats him well everyone that meets the guy loves him it's hard not to even his most ardent critics when they meet him they're amazed at how nice he is how kind he is and yes he has a friend who happens to be rich i think you know, not all of us do. I understand that. I understand that you can make it look bad. But I also understand that everyone has friends. And, you know, what's come of this is one professor who I admire and respect has proposed that, hey, if judges go to a friend's house, they should just pay them for the meal. We won't have any friends if we do that. If you came (laughs) to my house and offered to pay, my wife would probably kick you out and there would be a physical part in the kicking. And so, I think people have to just take a step back and say, are they doing this because it's Justice Thomas and the critics have been attacking him since he came on the bench? Or are they, are they doing it because they're genuinely concerned that Harlan Crow somehow had an influence of him? The reality is we all have friends that think the same as us. We also have friends my mom thinks very differently than me. Look, she's a social worker by trade. I know people say I've got kind of some of her in me. And I believe that I love her dearly. We don't talk things th- that really animate us in some ways because we love each other first. But she hasn't influenced me. And if your parents, I mean, I just think all the justices, I mean, Justice Ginberg, for example, you know, after this came out, then people started putting stuff out about her. And I didn't find that appropriate either that You know, her husband's firm appeared in front of the court. And should she have recused from all those clients? I mean, Harlan Crowe, at least as far as I know, hasn't appeared in front of the court. And so I think you just got to think through all that before we form conclusions about it. And what I think people can do is read the people's justice and form their own conclusion about Justice Thomas.
0: That makes Total sense. I totally agree with you. I do recall the story from the opening about how he befriended this homeless man outside of his church. I believe that maybe Nicole Garnett might have shared that one with you. She's a former Thomas clerk. Yeah.
1: So he walks out of church one day and Nicole's with him, as are a couple of his other clerks. And this homeless man comes running up and says, Justice, Justice, I've got a petition for you. And Justice Thomas stops and turns and walks over to the man, and the clerks are bracing and they're thinking, what's he doing? And he walks over, and the the clerks can see the man's animated and talking to him, and Justice Thomas comes back, and they walk back to the Supreme Court, and Justice Thomas says, you know, these are hard days for him, and the clerks are taken aback, and he says, he just lost his mother, and he had reconciled with her two years before. What Nicole subsequently learned is that this homeless person had been addicted to drugs, The justice had regularly met with him and counseled him on getting clean because that had driven a wedge between this homeless person and his mother. And the justice really wanted him to reconcile with his mother, which he did two years before when he did get clean. And so here's this homeless person that the justice was really close to. And I just wish those stories were told. I think What I do in the introduction and conclusion is I speak in my own words. People know my views. I don't hide my views on originalism. I don't hide my views on the justice. In between, the 12 chapters tell the stories of the people in front of the court, and they prove Justice Thomas as a human being is just like Justice Thomas as a jurist.
0: So that story, that remarkable story, came from Nicole, who's a former Thomas clerk. And I know that Laura Ingram, another former Thomas clerk, was a blurber. And you also talked to or received help from Mark Paoletto, who's a good friend of the Thomases. Did you hear from Justice Thomas himself in the course of working on the book? Since, as you mentioned, in many ways, despite the amazing stories of the litigants, he is the titular character of this book. I did not. So
1: intentionally, while I've met the justice on several occasions, I've seen him on several occasions in the process of really writing the book the last year and a half or so. I have not talked to him. I haven't said anything to him about the book. I wanted to be able to say that. I thought it was important in reviewing the stuff that if I needed to, I could take a different approach or at least indicate a different approach. But I don't even know, frankly, if he's seen or has the book yet. Unlike you, who I know has the book, no one's asked me to send him a copy. I have not done it. I do plan someday to hopefully give him a copy, but I'd love to know what he thinks. But I have not talked to him or even know if he's read it.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. Well, hopefully you will get to chat with him about it. I suspect that he would enjoy reading it. It is in many ways like a greatest hits of his jurisprudence. So going to the final questions, which are the same for all my guests. My first question is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law or law as a more abstract system of governance. Yeah, that's a great question.
1: I think, you know, my worry with the legal profession is that too many young people are getting disheartened when they go to firms. And I think if I had to diagnose what the issue is, There's too much discovery and not enough trials. I know, David, you've heard me say this before, but I really think civil lawyers have become discovery lawyers and not trial lawyers, and most of the fights are over discovery, and I think, I look back, why do most of us go to law school who wanna be lawyers? I'd say a large majority go because we wanna try cases, There's the intellectual side, the appellate side, but I think a lot of us go to try cases. And I'm disheartened by that. I'd like to see some reforms that allow people to become trial lawyers again. And I think it's important, as I did the people's justice, what I realized is, in working with these litigants, in talking through the stories, in writing up the stories that justice delayed is justice denied and it's important that people get their day in court. That's what a lot of people are looking for. So I'm sorry that I've taken your speed round and gone off <laughs> on, a, on a soapbox. But I just I think the profession could recover some of that trial side.
0: I totally agree. That's a great point. My second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer and a judge? You know,
1: I would hope I would serve the country in some other way because I owe so much to this country. My college roommate's a lifer in the Marines. He's now a general. I find that to be a really admirable profession. Of course, you know, in a dream of dreams, I'd love to be the commissioner of the NFL like Condoleezza (laughs) Rice wants to be or head of the PGA, for example. That'd be a ton of fun. But I can always dream. But I love my day job, so I'm not looking to cash it in. (laughs)
0: Fair enough, fair enough. My third question maybe touches on your schedule as a writer in those 3 a.m. nights, but how much sleep do you get each night?
1: Yeah, sadly, not a lot. My family often makes fun of me that I am up so early, but I am trying my best to recreate a sleep pattern that works. I don't think it's healthy, but I get about four hours a night.
0: Oh, my goodness. Wow. And you don't feel sluggish? You feel good? I drink a lot of coffee, David. (laughs) Okay, fair enough, fair enough. And my final question is, do you have any parting words of wisdom, such as career advice or life advice for my listeners? You know, I would say a
1: few things that we often forget in the legal world. First and foremost, life is short. Don't ever take a job with your eye on the next one. People always ask me about becoming a judge. And I think it's important that people love what they're doing now. That doesn't mean you're going to love every minute. If you're in the legal profession or any profession, you're going to have a grind to it. I mention this often. There's grinds to jobs you love. There's things you got to get through. But ultimately, you have to love what you're doing. The second thing I'd say is remember your priorities. Don't take yourself too seriously and try your best to love your neighbor. As I mentioned, my mom and I think very differently, but she's the best mom in the world and I love her deeply, just like I love my dad. So I think in the last four or five years, maybe 10 years, I've seen politics or other issues come between family members. And I just hope people would take a deep breath and remember that you should love your profession You should love what you do, but nothing's more important than your family. They're always going to be there for you and don't let issues come between it. So for lawyers and especially young lawyers, love your family, love your job. And remember, it can be a grind in both cases, but you still got to do it.
0: Well, thank you, Judge. Those are wonderful words to end on. And I think you definitely yourself live out that philosophy. So again, I really appreciate your coming on and congratulations again on the book. Thank you. And I hope everyone will go out and read it. And I, if I see you and you've read it, I'd love to know your thoughts
1: and anything I could have done better or differently. So I know I'll see a lot of your listeners at different times around on campus or something else, and I hope they will give me feedback. And if you have a copy,
0: I'm always happy to sign it. Great, great. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks so much to Judge the Thapar for joining me. Congrats again to him on the People's Justice, which I highly recommend. Thanks to NextFirm for sponsoring this episode of the Original Jurisdiction podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. If you would like to explore this opportunity, contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Heron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction. And thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlad at substack.com And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the podcast should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, July 12th. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.